0: Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 63 of the Mandolins and Beer Podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, the Mandolin Cafe. October 24th, live stream in Austin, Texas with Billy Bright, Kim Warner, Paul Glass, and myself, brought to you by Collings, Ellis, Mandolin Cafe, and Peghead Nation. Peghead Nation streaming video courses and mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dough, row, Ukulele and bass, you'll learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in roots music. PegheadNation.com features a great lineup of mandolin instructors with courses including Beginning Mandolin and Intermediate Bluegrass Mandolin and Fingerboard Method with Sharon Gilchrist, Bluegrass Mandolin Jam Favorites and the Advancing Mandolinist with Joe K. Walsh, Monroe Style Mandolin with Mike Compton, Melodic Mandolin Tunes with John Reichman, Chord Melody Mandolin with Aaron Weinstein, Irish Mandolin with Marla Fibish and Theory for Mandolin and Fiddle with Chad Manning. Courses include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. Join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now and get your first month free. Just go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code MANDOLINBEER at checkout. That's all one word. Also brought to you this week by Northfield Mandolins. Let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com and download their app at mando mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. And Ear Trumpet Labs is also sponsoring this week. They build hand-built microphones in Portland, Oregon. Their mics are beautifully designed to have great feedback rejection for live use and the most natural tone you'll find for acoustic instruments. Check them out at eartrumpetlabs.com today. They've got an awesome website as well, so be sure to check it out. Um, Thank you, everybody who's listening. Be sure to head over to Facebook and Instagram and follow me on both those pages. Again, the live stream, really looking forward to that. And we're doing the clinic, an in-person clinic with Kim Warner, Billy Bright, and myself at St. Elmo Brewing in Austin, Texas, Saturday afternoon, starting at noon. And it's really limited seating because of social distancing. And uh, it's filling up pretty quick here. There's still a few spots left, but uh, I'm not sure how many will be left at the end of this. Just email me at danielpatrickmusic at yahoo.com for more information. Holy cow, was I stoked to uh, do this interview with Ronnie McCurry. And we talked for a good while It was great, and I'm looking forward to seeing him here in just a few weeks in Charleston, South Carolina with the Traveling McCurries. So buckle up. This is a great one. Some amazing stories, and a part two is next week. And uh, I can't wait for you to hear that as well. So here we go. Let's get into it. Cheers, everyone. I'd like to welcome to the podcast a, a an absolute mandolin hero of mine, and I think many of the listeners who send me messages. When are you gonna get this guy on? Uh, I'd like to welcome Ronnie McCurry to the podcast. Ronnie, how are you?
1: I'm fine, Daniel. How you doing? Man, I am I'm
0: great. I'm great <laughs> now that I'm talking to you today. This is uh this is definitely a highlight of of doing this podcast. Um, I've been listening to you for so long and um and to be able to uh have you on here as a guest is is, it's an absolute honor so thanks for doing this today yes sir i appreciate it glad to be here with you awesome (laughs) and and we were just talking you um i live in charleston south carolina and and you guys just did the del mccurry band just did their very first show since march down here in charleston and um and we were kind of talk about that i mean you you're traveling with a national treasure <laughs> you know um and uh you were just saying this kind of from the stage to the bus how's all this uh how's all this been affecting what you do because i mean uh, this is this is what you do
1: <laughs> yeah yeah well you know uh yeah since march till right now i i, I think we've we've lost like uh, 90, 80, 90 shows or something like that, and uh, cause we stayed pretty busy, you know, with the two bands anymore, uh, the Travel McCurry's and with my father, and, well, we just finally had a, the, the Travelers have uh, kind of gone out and tested the water here a little bit, and had a few gigs, but my dad hadn't played uh, since March, and and so we went out, and the first show was in Charleston, South Carolina, and Maggie Valley, North Carolina, and then up to uh, Round Hill, Virginia, B-Corp Brewery. But it's uh, what I was kind of mentioning to you is kind of we're just being as safe as we can be, and Dad's just kind of going bus to stage to bus, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Man. We used to do a lot of, uh, you know, standing at the merch table and signing things and that's all changed right now. Just, just because of all the pandemic, but, um, we'll get back to normal eventually.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, it's just like, it's, it's, when you think about it, March, it seems like 10 years ago and, you know, it's just been a few months.
1: I know it. And, and, you know, it's, uh, I was kind of mentioning to you um, among the many kind of tough and hard, hardships about this, uh, just for me, just seeing my father in his twilight years here, um, 81 years old, just very, still very active and great singing and playing and can't really go out and do it what he wants to do. That's kind of the cruelest thing I I have personally right here. You know, and luckily, luckily, the health is all well with everyone, everyone I know. And, and uh, but, you know, I was kind of mentioning that to you. It's just that's a hard thing.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, and just like just every video you watch of you guys live, your dad is beaming. I mean, it's so obvious like that is that is like just one of his big happy places, you know, and <laughs> yeah. Where do you, uh where do you live? Do you live in Nashville? I do.
1: I, we live a a little town um north of Nashville. It's it's called Hendersonville, Tennessee. And uh a lot of people Uh, No Hendersonville because it was the home of Johnny Cash and uh, but it's a Madeline picking Mecca here in a way because Skaggs Ricky Skaggs has lived here for many years and Marty Stewart lives here uh, Dave Harvey Jonathan McClanahan lives here and Uh, boy, there's a lot. Uh, the next town up is Jesse McReynolds. (laughs) Holy cow. (laughs) What's in the water up there? (laughs) That's part of it. We're right on an old Hickory Lake. They call it here. That's, that's kind of why, well, I just like the town and, uh, I like the lake. I like water.
0: Yeah, me too. Me too. (laughs) You do much fishing?
1: Uh, I, I haven't been, I wish I would do more. Um, but yes, I always enjoy fishing. I always have growing up. and uh, I need to get out and do it more.
0: That's for sure. <laughs> well, man, so, uh, so normally this is about the time where I would ask, uh, how did you get into mandolin? Or in, And that seems like a silly question, knowing who your father is. But it is curious, as your dad's such a great guitar player, how you chose mandolin, I guess would be the question.
1: Well, Daniel, when I was uh, nine years old, I started on the fiddle. Uh, violin in school and um, I started playing it and I kind of got to, uh, I played it till I was I guess 13 I think it was and I i, uh, I kind of got frustrated I just wanted to learn quicker and you know we would work on these uh, orchestral pieces for you know the whole year you might learn a couple you know and it was uh, and i I just kind of got frustrated with it. I was also into sports pretty big time back then, and um, I got to a point uh, where the the I, I just wasn't always happy with the bow. You know how to use it right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and uh, I I had a big basketball tournament, or a uh, it was some kind of a orchestral show we did at school, and I, I chose the basketball game and my middle uh, the violin teacher she wasn't too happy with me about it <laughs> <laughs> and i think from that point on i just kind of i kind of changed i was going into high school or excuse me middle school i guess it was but um my dad did not have a regular mandolin player uh, at the time he was going as a four piece band from like uh, 79 to uh, 81 when I joined, personal Sizemore had been the mandolin player for just about two or three years before that. I mean, my dad always had, you know, pretty good uh, local musicians. Uh, in, we grew up in the state of Pennsylvania, and he always had uh, pretty good musicians in his band. And uh, you know, these guys all worked day jobs, but they were really good musicians. There was the, Dick Staber was one. Dick Staber played Manland early, and he he, uh, he he co-wrote "The Bluest Man in Town," one of my dad's bigger songs. That, Had the chorus and and uh, of course Dick he he just sung the chorus to to my dad and and Dick was there when he did and he remembered it and he went home and wrote the verses but um, oh cool yeah and he he was really a good mandolin player um, he he that would have been like the late sixties and the middle early seventies and then a guy named Donnie Eldredge kind of took over man that guy was great too he had just the most fluid right wrist and. Uh, early recordings of my dad through the seventies. He's he's on most of them, and he's just really those guys were. He could play the banjo and the fiddle and mandolin, but he had great timing and great. You know, these guys all kind of were in the Monroe vein, you know, uh, mm-hmm. but they learned a lot of fiddle tunes, and um, and then Herschel came along, and he was there a couple years before me and uh when i was 13 um i set the fiddle down and uh i went with my dad to a show in new york city at lincoln center oh uh, wow <laughs> yeah I was L- little a place
0: yeah yeah
1: <laughs> it may have been the first bluegrass show they had there because it was bill monroe my dad Erline Hickman, Crary, and the Lewis family, the gospel band from Georgia, who that was their first time ever in New York City. Oh, wow! And um, I went to that show, and I don't know, it's something about that, and it clicked with me with Bill Monroe on stage, and and uh, I had seen Bill before that and been around him a couple times with my dad, and you know, in Pennsylvania, local things because my dad put on a couple shows. Up there at fire halls and and high schools and stuff like that, and he would open the show and Bill Monroe would play and and uh, Bill came to the house and I was about nine or ten at the time and you know I wasn't really into the music, but you know you could the presence of a guy like that you know um, it's just you know that was anyhow all that kind of clicked with me after that weekend in New York City and my dad had a mandolin that was um kind of in pieces. He bought it from a guy and it was a homemade mandolin type thing. And the banjo player in my dad's band was Dick Smith and great banjo player and a, and a really good luthier and he had it and was putting it back together and I just kind of, you know, said, "Man, can can you can you hurry up on this cuz I think I have got the bug here." <laughs> so so I got it, and of course the fingering's the same as the violin. And before I got the mandolin, I found myself just playing the violin with a pick at the house. You know, I'm oh, just right. a kid. Yeah. So it uh, when I got the mandolin, it was man just six months later, I was on stage with my dad, and wow, it was one of those just chopping rhythm and playing chords, and and I kicked off a tune or two, you know. But they happen to be, you know, like rain and snow and me, high on the mountains, some songs that my dad was pretty well known for, and uh, he showed me that stuff. He showed me right away things that take mandolin players or anybody that holds a pick a long time to learn. How to hold a pick. (laughs) You know, uh, you can have a teacher that, I'm not going to say there's a right and wrong, but uh, you may have a teacher that uh, doesn't help you with that right from the start, how to hold a pick. Because maybe they don't
0: hold it right, you know. Is it, a pretty, uh, is it a pretty traditional grip that you, I mean, I'm doing it for listeners. I have your, uh, your, your DVD, which you show that. But um, for the listeners out there, pretty traditional grip.
1: Yeah, it is, definitely.
0: You know, but it's, you know, so
1: people hold picks um, too hard, to, you know, or too light or whatever it is. And he, of course, he showed me right away how to uh, use your wrists. Uh, Your right wrist, you know, I'm talking about the right hand and and kind of keeping it. I always return to this because he told me this. He said, just keep your wrist loose as a dish rag." (laughs) (laughs) And, and, uh, you know, I I always remember that. And a lot of people, you can watch them and it looks like it's really it's hard. They're playing hard. It looks hard. Mm-hmm. and And they're not they're they're using more of their elbow <laughs> than their wrist and uh, so that's one thing that right away he showed me how to how to keep a loose wrist and and uh some of the early tunes he showed me <laughs> were things like bluegrass breakdown and uh rawhide wow. <laughs> and yeah I mean those, it's, it's <laughs> a lot of people learn fiddle tunes right away right. And, and I, I don't knock anybody that's that's their own thing but for me playing hard driving bluegrass with my dad that was the tunes that he showed me. So yeah, I mean the, the the first instrumental I ever played on stage was bluegrass breakdown. It <laughs> that probably you know and you when you're a teenage real young teenager, I was fourteen. I turned fourteen in March, and I was on stage in May. And then you know all through the those years, you just you know you kind of keep when you learn tunes like that. Then then it's all about keeping the speed up and. And being able to to uh,
0: kind of play fast, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm guessing they didn't take it easy on you that first gig. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, it, it's it's kind of funny. It's they he was so. Uh, my dad never told me once to practice. Oh wow, nice. Yeah, and and uh, now I look back and find it hard to believe he should have told me more, but. Uh, <laughs> but he didn't, he didn't tell my brother or myself really. It's just kind of, we saw how much fun he had playing music and it's kind of, it sucked us into it, you know? And, um, but of course we both have the love of learning it. And, um, and so he, he never pushed me to do that. Um, you know, incidentally that first day I stood on stage at 14, um, and you got to remember, I'm a product of this music, Bluegrass. I've just been around a lot of musicians all my life. You know, even though we grew up in rural Pennsylvania, when Dad would play shows and we went along, we'd see Jim and Jesse and Bill Monroe and the Aldrin brothers and, you know, great, great musicians, you know. And um, that first day I stood on stage, uh, I buddied up. With a guy who it was his first uh, first time on stage that he he was a fiddle player in the Johnson Mountain Boys, but he took the mandolin playing job, and that was David McLaughlin.
0: Oh wow!
1: So that it was May twenty eighth, nineteen eighty one, and we both uh, kind of started a kinship up right away, you know, and. Uh, It's great to see those guys. They went into the Hall of Fame this year. I just
0: saw that. That's so great.
1: (laughs) But, uh, you know, and then when you're young like that and playing bluegrass music, um, a lot of the older folks, they just kind of take you in. You know, they know that you like this kind of music. I'm not talking about David. David was in his early 20s. You know, we weren't too far off at that time. But, you know that same day there was a bluegrass singer named Bill Harrell and the Virginians there. and You know, they kind of just want to see you do well and they, they encourage you and, and uh, that's things that I, I've taken with me and learned from this music, you know,
0: just the uh, picking parties that must've been, <laughs> must've been at your house <laughs> as a kid. Well, you know, picking
1: parties back then, um, in Pennsylvania, uh, were basically the the band members would come over and bring their kids and families and we'd get together and it was basically a rehearsal for the band but there'd be other guys come you know and i grew up with that kind of thing happening so when i come to nashville i do the same thing here i uh, i have for i moved here in 92 but uh Mm -hmm. we've had some Epic picking parties here. <laughs> I, can,
0: I, I cannot imagine. <laughs> I cannot imagine.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, but uh, I might get off track here on you.
0: <laughs> and then you went to Europe real quick with your dad, too. I was watching the uh, NPR Tiny Desk concert. He was telling the story about your high school principal. Oh, yeah. Yeah, calling him in and saying, uh, So Ronnie says he wants to go to Europe with you on tour. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and was that we were like fourteen at that time as well?
1: No, I was sixteen. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was sixteen, and and uh, the principal said, "Well, you'll learn more there in a month than you will here," and uh, which I thought was very nice. Um, and we didn't see eye to eye when I got back. To well, when I got to be a little older with that principal, but. <laughs> <laughs> but uh you know i I did go overseas with my dad and and we played uh i think we played thirty out of thirty two days wow, and of course man that just that just you know you're ready to to go at that age and you're playing every night and and I, and I look back on it now, and I can't imagine how tough it was on my dad because I wasn't singing back then, I was just playing and he had to, he had to sing you know every night, and man he's he is a hoss because when he sings uh any kind of song that has harmony he he also sings the tenor part, so <laughs> for the most part, I mean I have now, but back then uh it was I don't do as much as he does, but I do sing tenor on a couple of things with him, but which isn't easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah! <laughs> But uh but he was he was really working hard over there. And for the Madeline players, uh we got on a train one time and uh seems like it was in uh, Germany. We got in the train car and in the train car was Red Rector.
0: Oh wow. <laughs> no kidding.
1: Yeah. And we were, all. Red Rector was an incredible mandolin player. For anybody that doesn't know who he is, he was an incredible mandolin player, really. He was from Knoxville, Tennessee. And just great you gotta look him up and he, he, he recorded with everybody you know through the years including Jethro Burns he, the two of them have a duet record but um he was going to uh the same place I guess we were and and also when we when we got uh to a festival over there it was Doyle Austin and Quicksilver oh cool yeah and so you know I'm 16 and these guys were just so nice to me, you know, red rector was, and, and so was doll. Dole was always very inspiring. You know, were you still
0: playing the, uh, the, the, the put together mandolin at that point?
1: No, uh, man, the day came, uh, that my dad said, I, I think you need a better mandolin. And, and, um, it was a Kentucky KM 1000. Oh, nice. And there was a, uh, you know, there's a lot of pickers really in that area we grew up in. And one, one of them was a, a banjo player named Chris Warner, who also played. He played with my dad, but he played with Jimmy Martin and recorded with Jimmy Martin in the 60s. And and of course, he played. We went back and forth with Jimmy through the years. And he had a music store that uh, a lot of people visited. And, and he repaired things. And uh, that's where we bought it, at that store. I still have the mandolin. Oh um, cool. Yeah, I still still have all of them but uh we I played that mandolin till uh Brisbane laid one on me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when did you uh, when did you meet David? Um I met David when I was probably about 18. I think. Yeah, I was uh I was older. I didn't. I didn't meet him or Sam Bush, till I was older. Um, I think I didn't meet Sam till I was probably well. I guess nineteen or yeah, nineteen. I guess. Mm -hmm. You know, these guys were uh, just, uh, and everybody sitting at home knows the same feeling. You know, I was like, man, I can't wait to see these guys. I can't wait to hear them live. I can't wait to see them. You know, and I'd already been with my dad and traveled
0: all over the place but had never crossed paths that's wild actually to think about that for as much traveling as you know (laughs) all the same circles and such
1: yeah but you know we my dad was a traditional bluegrass band and uh newgrass was newgrass and david grisman was playing dog music and and back then it wasn't uh now it's kind of all together in a way you know mm-hmm. um back then it wasn't as much and um you know and those guys they all looked up to my dad so i i was uh when i met them it was all you know they they'd all just they just took me into you know You're right <laughs> right <laughs> i i uh i was at my house uh as a teenager the first time i really knew about crispin was we received a package in the mail and it was uh it was from my dad and it was these albums in it and it was uh the release of early dog on sugar hill records and it was david's uh record that had uh, half of it was a live show in new york and the band was my dad and my uncle jerry and winnie winston played banjo and and david oh cool that was half of our Early Dog, and the rest were tunes that he had been writing. And um, So I was listening to it, and I was like, oh, man, listen to this guy play this bluegrass, you know. <laughs> and then, then you hear this other stuff that he's writing. And I was like, man, this guy's something. Because, you know, my early influences, of course, number one was, was my dad and Bill Monroe. And just loved Bill Monroe, and I tried to learn everything that he... Every break he ever, solo he ever took on a record, you know, and I, I was, you know, I pretty much had him, had him down. That's what I liked. And, uh, and then the next guy, uh, besides Bobby Osborne and Jesse McReynolds, cause those guys were stylists to me. They, mm-hmm. they were, they were the three that this whole bluegrass mandolin really comes from, in my opinion. And the next guy was Frank Wakefield. <music> he was the first one to really emulate Bill Monroe and he could really do it. And I just appreciated that so much and, and would play try to learn his stuff. Well, then when I found out this guy, David Grishman, uh, was kind of at the feet of Frank back then, you know, learning all this stuff from Frank that, uh, and I, I kind of got into him, uh, David and, and of course, along with that Sugar Hill record were his, uh, his albums that he had put out at that time. That first quintet record, mm-hmm. and I put that on the turntable and I couldn't believe what he was doing with a mandolin. You know? <laughs> yeah. It was pretty mind-blowing to me. And then, you know, you have that rhythm section and two mandolins and twin mandolins and know playing the tenor and lead and I just I had never heard anything like it you know to me that was just that was like going to the moon or something you know yeah it still sounds that way (laughs) it it, it really it really does man it it, in in the Madeline world it does and uh, it's so it was so inspiring and and uh, you know I had Tony Rice playing that guitar and it was so, everything was so clean and the recording was so great. And that just blew a door open, you know.
0: What was the, uh, what was the mandolin that he laid on you? Well, um,
1: we started doing some shows together. Um, I, I went to California with my dad and we played out there. At Grass Valley, I think it was, and then and then he was asked to stay a couple of days and record with David. Record, I think it was. Home is where the heart is at the time. So we we stayed over and I just, you know, we stayed at David's house, you know, and you walk in, there's, you know, mandolins hanging on the wall, <laughs> like for art. And, and uh, it was just, I was like, wow, this is what I want. This is everything I want. <laughs> 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 and uh, and um, uh, also in that session, I got to tell you, when I, I walked out of the session one time, that when we were about to leave and there's this guy sitting on a couch and he was playing the heck out of Madeline and cross picking like crazy. And it was John Jorgensen. Oh, wow. And, um, I was just knocked out by that too. John was in the desert Rose band with Herb Peterson and they were a pretty big country band at the time, but Herb was recording with dad and David and, uh, he was just kind of hanging out the studio and i just i was like wow man this guy can play and then i heard him <laughs> he
0: play guitar <laughs> oh man <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but uh you know uh i was out there and and then we started doing these shows called uh, David Grisman and the Bluegrass Experience which was basically the Del McCurry band at the time with David and He wanted to scratch his bluegrass itch, you know, at the time, and and so he came east, and we did a bunch of shows, and um, he told my dad. He said, you know, uh, he told me, he said, I've got a mandolin at home. That I think it'd be good for you, you know. And I never asked for it. I didn't do anything, and and never said anything about it. And my my dad he went out and, and uh, played a show or something with David and in Frisco. And he came back with it to Pennsylvania. And, uh, it was the 1981 Gilchrist that I've got. Wow. And, and the neck was coming out of it. Um, it, it was coming out of the, out of the joint. Uh, and I had it fixed by the fiddle player in the band named Warren Blair. He, he was, a uh, Somewhat of a luthier too, and he he kind of put it back and and man, I've played that thing ever since, and uh, I think I was twenty, maybe, so you know it's uh, maybe thirty three years and um but it didn't sound like it does now it, it <laughs> was it was, it was kind of tight, you know, just that's <laughs> that's what happens now, David told me the story on that was. He went to the post office on his birthday. He got a message in the in the mail. There's a package in at the post office in Mill Valley, California. So he went down there, and here's this box, and he opens it up, and it's this mandolin, and it's from Stephen Gilchrist as a birthday present. And um, he just never played it much because he had his fern, you know. He was he had already been playing that fern for years, and it was a which isn't uh, last time I saw him. He was playing the Fern instead of crusher. Oh, wow. Yeah. He's, uh, he had that thing out and it was, it's just great, you know? And, um, long story short, that would have been, uh, say the Mike Marshall years, you know? And, um, uh, I've asked those guys about it because it had a little bit of wear on the back of the neck. Somebody played it. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, 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 <laughs> and those guys said, yeah, we remember when he got it. And we must have played it a little bit back then, you know, but he, he kind of put it away and pulled it out and gave it to me, man. He laid it on me. And, uh, yeah, the greatest... That just... Uh, that just goes to show you what kind of person David is, you know. I mean, he... I'm not the only one. He's done that for several people, you know, and uh wonderful, wonderful fella.
0: Yeah, that's amazing.
1: Yeah, it is, and and you know, I played in that. I eventually got a Lloyd Lore here the last the uh, you know, about I don't know, what fifteen years ago maybe I got one and everybody's dream is to get a Lloyd Lore. Well, <laughs> <Right>. You know? <laughs> I got one and uh kind of the same thing. The back was in coming apart, and the fingerboard was coming off. It had never been played, hardly at all.
0: Wow. I think
1: wow. I think it had less wear than this Gilchrist when I got it.
0: <laughs> no kidding!
1: <laughs> <laughs> and I had Steve fix it, uh, Gilchrist. And he put her back together, and uh, it was kind of dead-sounding to me, you know? And sure. it's funny, I said, Steve, what are you think is going to open it up he said well it's it's basically had open heart surgery (laughs) 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 and he said it's gonna take a while to heal (laughs) (laughs) and uh and you know i played it then i just thought i'm gonna have to beat on this thing for a while and uh so i played it for about two or three years and man it got good it got really good but it didn't have a certain thing i missed about my gilchrist a dryness or something about it and uh and so i went back to the gilchrist (laughs) (laughs) he's about the finest builder right now in the world you know it's hard to dispute it i mean there's a lot of good ones out there but he's so consistent
0: we, um, I just interviewed Walter Carter for this. I was in Nashville a few weeks ago uh, oh. doing a live stream thing. And I interviewed um, Walter. And we were just talking about that. And like, Gilchrist is definitely the, the guy right now that is the, the dude that everybody's like. He's the waiting list guy. I, I think we phrased yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. And he's a yeah. nice guy. I met him there um, last December. And what oh, a, we're, what a oh, genuinely nice guy. Isn't he, though? Uh oh. Wonderful, yeah. so It's a wonderful. It's, and it's amazing to see like the um, the care and anxiety that goes into the, to the delivery of the mandolins. You know what I mean? Like that guy is it seems to be a ball of nerves until everybody gets their mandolin and is completely satisfied, which says yeah. a lot about a guy because, especially, you know. He could be like, "All right, here they are. I'm going back to Australia." <laughs> yeah, right. you know? yeah, you're right. You know, you're
1: right, but it's it's it, You know, it's his kids, and he uh, he he labors all year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> he's he's in labor all year. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, he's just a wonderful fellow. Wonderful fellow.
0: What's the backstory on your lore? Well, uh my mandolin, um this
1: fella named uh Jeff Peters, who is a uh, he's a recording engineer from Los Angeles. And um he mainly works with rock and roll artists and he worked with um Brian Setzer of the Stray Cats and he um uh, I guess he was talking with his wife about, you know, instruments. His wife said, well, I remember my uncle had a mandolin, and I believe he wound up leaving it to her and, uh, he lived in uh, Mexico, no galleys, Mexico. I've never been there, but, um, she got this mandolin, and, uh, they wanted to, uh, you know, he wasn't a mandolin player. So, Brian Setzer uh, said, Man, you ought to take that to Nashville and, and see if Ricky Skaggs or Ronnie McCurry want it. And I. <laughs> I
0: just, wow.
1: You know, I think he, he probably. I, I knew he'd come to the station in quite a bit when he comes to town. You know, a lot of people do, you know. And, and maybe I was there playing seven years uh, one night. I mean, seven years for. <laughs> Every Tuesday, you know, and, yeah. and uh, long story short, I guess he—he, he, I don't know why he said that to me, but that's what this Jeff told me. And so he, I don't think Ricky was interested because he had just purchased one or something, you know. And uh, so I said, "Well, I'll just." He called me up and I said, "I'll go look at it." And uh, went and looked at it um, right away. It was in a hotel room, and I knew the case, you know, and and. You know when you're messing around with instruments like this you want to be just clear about things and and uh, he was just the finest fellow to talk to and i knew that everything was straight up well the case opened up <laughs> and there it was and it was clean man that thing was clean um, Wow! but it was dry down there in mexico so it kind sort of it is what opened up that back seam and uh, and the fingerboard and all that kind of stuff, and and it was never played much, and uh, but it's it's a good one. I just don't play it that much. I um, like I said, I did for a couple of years and recorded a couple of records with my dad, um, but then then I went to this back to the Gilchrist. My my parents are the ones that made it possible, and uh, you know I thank them, and they. They just they were at the point where, you know, if you like it, let us know and then and uh we'll we'll get it and then, you know, divvy it up with the kids. Uh, I have a sister and a brother, you know, and figure it out later and uh well, not wasn't too long after that Rob got a pre-war banjo so. <laughs> <laughs> Dad. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah
0: you know i can't think of i can't think of a, a better group of guys to get instruments like that i mean you know that's uh there are people who well, are gonna play you. them and make them sound amazing was there any was there any time? I mean, you've been playing with your dad all this time. Was there any time where you're like, "Yeah, I just want to be an electrician," or was it just like, "This is, <laughs> you know, I just want to"? This music was always it after it bit you.
1: Well, I, I guess when, uh, you know, I was just kind of as a teenager, you know, you're you're. I was playing music with my dad, and in the wintertime it wasn't as as many gigs at all you know we wouldn't play as much and the summer was mainly you know just about every weekend at a festival because guys worked in the band you know my dad wasn't a we did we did like that 30 day trip or 32 days to uh europe was a was wasn't very common i'll put it that way we we were just kind of weekend warriors my dad had been because he was still working and my mother worked Kind of a factory job my dad he was a logger so you know he worked hard uh, they both did and 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 then when i turned 18 you know uh i think he quit logging then and uh my brother had he was starting to come along uh, playing he's four years younger and uh he was starting to, to play more and he hadn't been in the band yet uh, cause we had guys, but, you know, then I saw all my buddies kind of leave, you know, and go to college and, <laughs> and, uh, you know, start doing other things and your life changes a little bit. And I'm thinking, well, is this, is this what I want to do or what am I going to do? Yeah. This is what I've concentrated on now already, you know, and, uh, for these years, you know, and, and, so I said, all right, I've got to at least start trying to write some instrumentals. And, um, you know, Grisman was very inspiring with that because I was around him and he would show me his instrumentals and he's a great teacher, you know. He, he takes the time and he shows you and if you got a wrong note, he tells you, you know. I mean, <laughs> You know, yeah, that's what you <laughs> that's need. <laughs> it, it, that's exactly what you need. You know, and so I was loving his tunes, and and uh, I thought, well, I'm going to have to at least try and start writing some tunes. And I've never been as prolific as him, but uh, hey, my time ain't up yet. But
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but
1: uh, I think the first the first tune I, I wrote uh, was one. It's called Quicksburg Rendezvous. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just of an up tempo. I've always kind of um, written tunes that would suit bluegrass as far as a banjo playing it, and which isn't always easy. And uh, as far as you know, kind of up tempo or something like that. But I, I enjoy it. Uh, I don't think there's enough of them. <laughs> you know, yeah, absolutely we all kind of playing bluegrass anyhow, because I'm sure you got d- many different Madeline players listening out there, but playing bluegrass, you know, it's, uh, there's not a whole big deep well to pull from that isn't, you know, Bill Monroe or, or you know, these guys that I'm talking about that lay before us, you know, uh, you know, uh, Jesse McReynolds or something. They, they, they've written a lot of good instrumentals for bluegrass, for banjo, you know. And it, it it's not easy to do it's it's not i, I guess it's not easy to
0: do I haven't <laughs> well the way to make one that's lasting too you know what I mean like again like anybody can just you know it's like it's it's art like anything. It's like somebody paints 50 pictures in a day. I'm like, well, I mean, is that really art? Is that going to stick around or is it, you know what I mean? Are you going to write some, are you going to paint something that people are going to put on a wall forever? <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: right. That's right. That's exactly right.
0: <laughs> you know. Yeah, not everybody's going to write Glen Rock. I mean, you wrote Glen Rock. That's a great tune.
1: Thank you, man. That's that's the little town that I'm from, and that was that was the early one that I wrote back then. It was it was you know, and it, it's kind of a take on a Bill Monroe type of thing, you know, the Stomp era, you know, which is interesting. I I heard this tune uh, from a I'm a black blues mandolin player in Kentucky, and do 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 do. It's the same as a bluegrass stump. You know?
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and it was from the twenties, you know. It's just uh you know, you can <laughs> uh, as David Grisman says, Hey man, good composers can borrow but the great ones steal. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh, it's so funny that, that you could just hear that in his voice too <laughs> You had one on that on speaking of your soul album too you had that um that D- dog On. Yeah. that you wrote that he uh, he played on that as well right yes he did yeah it's yeah. another great song man well thanks
1: i i, I kind of like the uh it's uh <laughs> it's got a, a minor and a major kind of mix to it you know mm. and my dad would always say that you know i'll be doggone <laughs> he would always say that and i and i also said well you know i want to write something kind of name it after the dog, and I said, Hey, man, I'm going to call this dog gone. <laughs> he always, <laughs> and he says, Hey, that's what it's going to say on my tombstone, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that's great. <laughs> oh. Yeah. oh my God, that's so funny. Oh. He is that. He's a funny man. Yeah.
0: You guys, and, and what's, what was the story behind you guys put together the bluegrass mandolin extravaganza? And that's where we're going to leave it for this week. Part two next week with Ronnie McCurry, Austin, Texas, October 24th, live stream, 7 p.m. Central. $10 recommended donation, but whatever you can afford will be greatly appreciated. Uh, Billy Bright, myself, Kim Warner, Paul Glass. Also, if you live in the Austin area, we still have a few seats left for the in-person, socially distant clinic at St. Elmo Brewing. want to thank Mandolin Cafe, Peghead Nation, Collings, and Ellis for helping put this live stream together, by the way. Part two with Ronnie next week. Cheers, everybody.